tender moments, right? <laughs> One huge table, every single person in this room, we're working together on a huge puzzle, fitting the pieces of that puzzle together. Well, tonight I want us to discover how the various stories, the various books and names make up the puzzle of the Bible. How a seemingly bloody and ritualistic book like the book of Leviticus, where reading plans go to die, is somehow connected to the overarching story of Scripture. So the aim tonight, our primary objectives, are to help you gain a better understanding of the storyline of the Bible, to fit some of those pieces together like a puzzle, but also to rejoice and take delight in the hope that we have in Christ. So if you bear those two things in mind, and as you think about them, if those things have not been accomplished, then I have not done my job, but I hope that we can trace the storyline of Scripture and then take delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did y'all receive handouts whenever you came in? A couple of you, not everyone? If you want to pass some of those out, Annalise, sorry about that. I set them on the table and then didn't communicate that we needed. Raise your hand if you need one of those. A lot of folks. This would be helpful for you just as we follow along. Thanks, Claire. I told y'all this was going to be a tender moment, like a family <laughs> sitting around a table working on a puzzle. Here we are. Thanks. Flash, flash, 100-yard dash. Let's go. All right, so we got to start where every story starts, our origin. Where did we come from? So you can see there that first sub-point on the handout, where did we come from? This is what we call creation. So if you're there and find your place in Genesis 1, you can see that in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. The rest of Genesis, we see that God creates all things by the word of his mouth. It is the word of God that creates and sustains all things, including, as we see in verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, humanity. So in verse 31, we see that God has created humanity and he has made everything, and behold, it was not just good, but very good. Several things I think are important to note about this creation account. We can't go uh, in an exhaustive way, but the first is that God is the creator of all things, and thus he is the head, he is the ruler, he is the king over all things, and everything submits to him. How silly would it be for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone to somehow jump out of the pages and tell J.K. Rowling how to write her story? Fundamental to understanding the Bible's story is understanding the reality that God is the creator and we are the creature and we must submit to him as such. God is eternal. We are finite. God is all-knowing. We are limited in our knowledge. God is in all places at all times. 
we as humans occupy a specific time at a specific place just as we're doing now. Try as we might to domesticate God like a dog, we will not succeed and we will certainly regret our attempt to do so. And yet God didn't make the earth and make humans because he was somehow bored in heaven or he just wanted to play the board game called Life, the Divine Edition. No, God created all things, including humanity, because of the abounding love that existed in him from eternity in his three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God created humans out of an overflow of his own character. As I mentioned, the God has existed eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that unity, fellowship, and love that the three persons of the Trinity have shared for eternity spilled out into God's creation of us so that we as humans could both image God and also share and enjoy the fellowship that he's enjoyed. It's important to note a couple of extra things about specifically the creation of man from this account. The first, as you've probably picked up on, is that man bears God's image. And secondly, man has received a commission from God for a specific purpose. You look there in verse 27 of chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And here's the commission. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And behold, God said, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So we see here that man is commissioned to be fruitful and multiply, which is more than just procreating and having children. No, it's about filling the good creation that God has made with more image bearers, more people who uniquely demonstrate to the world who God is is and what he is like. That man bears God's image means that he is, again, to uniquely demonstrate to the world who God is and what God is like. And that man is commissioned by God to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it. That doesn't mean that humans have the right to trash this earth, but instead that they are to steward the earth, to enjoy the good gifts of God's creation. They're to enjoy science. They're to enjoy the arts, the the beauty that God has given to us. And they are to expand that creation and to rule over the creation. And then finally, if you look over to chapter 2, verse 16, you see that as creatures, they are to submit to God's rule. God has given them certain commands that they must follow. In this creation account, everything is perfect. Bountiful land, the promise of offspring of being fruitful and multiplying, and divine blessing with God are promised to them. But apparently to the world's first humans, Adam and Eve, this was not good enough for them, and they decide to reject God's rule. So we move to our second question, what went wrong? This is what Christians often refer to as the fall. If you look over to the next chapter in Genesis chapter 3, we see that along comes a serpent who asks a sly and nefarious question. He asks the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
To which the woman responds, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. To the astute reader, you'll notice that Eve has added her own editorial remarks to God's initial command in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, when she says, Neither shall you touch it. God did not say that. And this is where Eve done messed up. She has added to God's words, and she has actually made them seem more burdensome than they actually are. It's not long before verse 6 of chapter 3 reveal that she and her husband who was with her both eat of the fruit and thus directly go against God's commands to them. And then verse 8 of chapter 3 records one of the most depressing verses in the whole Bible. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Though enjoying intimate fellowship with God just moments ago, the first humans are now hiding themselves from God because they know that in their disobedience, there's this, this, felt, there's this perceived understanding of their shame of their nakedness, of the reality that they'd been caught before a holy God, that they had transgressed a holy God, that even though they knew they had been given so much by God, that they had rejected that God. The rest of Genesis chapter 3 records the curses that the first humans bring upon themselves due to their disobedience. Among that laundry list is pain, physical pain, enmity between other humans, weariness in work, and namely death, as verse 19 indicates, and banishment from God's presence, as verse 23 indicates. As we see here, sin's effects destroy the relationship shared between God and man, and it also destroys their relationship with one another. As history will show, humans will continue to shed the blood of other humans. Powerful humans will continue to oppress those who have no power. And in their moralism, Christians will always try to work their way to God in an act of self-justification and self-righteousness. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans helps us to understand that Adam's sin had lasting effects for all of humanity, not just Earth's first humans. For the command that Adam broke in Genesis 2.17 would bring about consequences to all because Adam, as the first human, represented all humans after him. Paul says that, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. By the one man's disobedience, all are made disobedient. That is, all of the offspring of Adam are already disobedient to God. But lest you think it's unfair that you, even sitting in this room, are automatically made disobedient because of one man's disobedience, the spoiler alert is that through one man's obedience, we can be considered obedient again 
if we unite ourselves to him in faith, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we consider that person, let's look to this third question. What is the solution to our problem? We're only three chapters into the Bible, but we've already discovered where we have come from and what has gone wrong. And really, the rest of the story of the Bible mostly consists in understanding what the solution to our problem is. And that's the beauty of what we would call kind of progressive revelation that God slowly reveals over the course of the Old Testament what that provision, what that redemption will come to look like. Put differently, how will a holy God dwell again with an unholy people? We recognize our predicament that in our sin, we have affronted a holy God, and so we're left to wonder how can an unholy people dwell again with a holy God, as was God's first desire in creation. So if you look down at Genesis 3.15, we see that out of the deafening reverberations of death, we hear a faint whisper of deliverance that will come through a seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that is between Satan, the evil one, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what many have called the first sight of the gospel in the Bible. This understanding that there will be one who will come from the woman, a seed who will come from the woman, and who will destroy the serpent, who will destroy the evil, who will destroy death. Now, as New Covenant believers, when we ask that question, who will the seed be? I can already feel it coming up. Our temptation is to immediately jump to the New Testament and say, it's Jesus. But that's kind of like looking in the back of your math book for the answers on your quiz. You're going to get the right answer, but you're not going to know how you got there. You're not going to know how to show your work, and you're not going to appreciate what it took to get there. So the rest of the Bible really helps us to both better understand, again, this provision of the seed, to increase our anticipation, our excitement for it, but also to help us to relish in the goodness of what God has done and continues to do and has done in the person of Christ. So let's look a little bit more at some of this storyline of the Bible. I'm going to be referencing some different passages. You can feel free to turn there if you'd like, but we might be moving quickly, so don't feel the need to necessarily do so. In Genesis 12, God chooses a man by the name of Abram to be the means through which he would continue to clarify the soundings of that whisper, that whisper of the seed of the woman. He tells Abram to leave his country and his family and to go to the land that God will show him so that God can make him into a great nation, so that God can bless him, and so that God can bless all the families of the earth through him. Abram obeys, and Genesis 15 says that God credits that obedience to him, that is that Abram, though he couldn't see what God was doing, though he had no certainty that God's word was going to be true, he believed God, and God credited that belief to him, the text says in Genesis 15, as righteousness. Then in Genesis 17, God promises to be Abraham's God and the God of his people and to give them the land of their sojournings forever. It's important to recognize what exactly God is promising Abram now Abraham right here. 
though Adam and Eve had failed in their task, God promises that Abraham's offspring will fulfill the task and receive the covenant blessings that God had intended for Adam and Eve to enjoy. As you'll notice, Abraham's offspring will be fruitful and multiply. They will fill the earth. They will enjoy the land of their sojournings, the promise of that luscious land. And thirdly, they will be in relationship with God as they joyfully submit to his lordship over them. But it's also clear that we still don't know necessarily when this offspring will come and enjoy the reality that God has promised to them. Whether it's the people of Israel's rejection of God and making a golden calf, so God did make true to his promise to make a great people of Abraham, and this becomes the nation of Israel who, if you're familiar with the Bible, was sent into Egypt, and then that's where they grew as a people, and then ultimately landed in bondage and slavery in the land of Egypt. But God raised up a man by the name of Moses to deliver his people from evil, to take them out of slavery, to redeem them and bring them into this land that he had promised to them. But those people, again, like Adam and Eve, rejected God's good rule, rejected him as Lord over them. And we see this in many instances throughout. We even see it in Moses himself, the one that God had raised up to deliver them, when in his anger and faithlessness struck a rock twice in direct disobedience to God and faithlessness to God. A quick perusal of the rest of the Old Testament reveals that man's continued failures due to sin and the continued tension about how God's going to bring that redemption to pass. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, it can be pretty depressing. (laughs) You see all these instances where God in his grace and his mercy and his kindness gives chance after chance after chance to various people, to specifically his nation of Israel. And yet time and time and time and time and time again, they reject God and choose to go their own way. By the book of 1 Samuel, we see that a king by the name of David is anointed and we wonder... If this king, okay, well, maybe Israel, the problem was that they just never had a righteous king. So now that they have a righteous king, this is the promised seed of the, promised seed of the woman, and he's the one who's going to bring these promises to pass. We even see that in 2 Samuel 7, God promises that King David will, that rather that God will raise up offspring from King David after him and will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for his name and establish the throne of God's kingdom forever. But yet we soon see that David too sins against God and fails to be the type of king that God himself requires. And thus it becomes apparent that he is not to fulfill the promise that God made to Adam and that God made to Abraham. King after king in the book of the kings reveal that they lead their people into more and more wickedness. After David and after all of these kings, we are left to wonder, how in the world is God going to make good on his promise? Even a king like David, a king that was one who was after God's own heart, was unable to fulfill the commissions that God had given him. And so we're left with this tension. Is God a liar? Is the promise that he made there in Genesis 3.15 to bring a seed from the woman to defeat sin, to defeat evil, a lie? 
Is God really trustworthy? God then sends along the prophets to tell us that, no, he is trustworthy. (laughs) In fact, he tells us and helps us grasp how he's going to bring this promise to pass. Again, this whisper, it's like a, a whisper that's slowly getting louder and louder. It's being amplified so that we can better understand how God is going to bring these things to pass. We learn in Isaiah that he will do it through a suffering servant, one who will be despised and rejected, who will bear our sickness and pain, and who will be pierced for our transgressions, as Isaiah 53 shows. It will be through this suffering servant that God's people will be healed. So we know how, but we still don't know yet when or who. We know that it'll be one, as Jeremiah 31 says, that will write God's law upon their hearts, and they will finally obey God as he desires and even as he himself requires in the scriptures. It is through this one that he will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sins. And it's also through this one, as Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel chapter 37, who will breathe out the spirit and bring both spiritual and physical life to those who are dead. So we're starting to see more and more of how God is going to bring about this promise. But again, we still don't know yet when or who will bring it about. The whole Bible has been building to this resolution, the one that the whole Old Testament has been pointing to. And in the words of Chance the Rapper, the book don't end with Malachi. We soon get to the book of Matthew, the first gospel indeed after the final prophet Malachi's words, we are led to a genealogy in the gospel of Matthew where there is born one by the name of Jesus Christ, who the text says is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, here we go. Here's someone that sounds like they might be the fulfillment of this. Is this Jesus, the one who is the son of Abraham, who is the son of David, the one who will deliver his people who will make good on God's promises. Matthew 1, 21 confirms our suspicions, for he says that this Jesus will save his people from their sins. This Jesus, as John 1 spells out, is the very word of God incarnate and was with God from eternity. This Jesus, as Paul declares in Colossians 1, is the perfect image of God and with God created all things. This Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament longings. The whispers of Genesis 3 have now turned into the roar of the Lion of Judah. God himself will provide the means for the salvation that he requires. And this Jesus, unlike Adam, Unlike Abraham, unlike David, unlike all the kings that came before him, perfectly obeyed God. Though he was tempted like the rest of mankind, as Matthew 4 clearly spells out, this Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve, who did not fulfill their commission to cultivate the garden, this Jesus did so perfectly by demonstrating his power over creation, by calming the storms and healing the sick, by unveiling for us what God is eventually going to do in restoring all things. 
This Jesus multiplies perfectly by breathing the Spirit onto his disciples in John chapter 20, verse 22, who will then go and make more disciples who are embodied by Christ's Holy Spirit. This Jesus, unlike the first Adam, who in his sin, in the curse from God, returned to dust, no, this Jesus, after his death, rose from the dust to life and thus demonstrated that he was the true son of David, the true seed of the woman who would conquer sin and death. Don't you see now the majesty and the splendor of Christ? Tracing the main message of the Bible helps to intensify and deepen our understanding of our profound need apart from Christ and of our profound provision in Christ. So by tracing this, we should understand that we are a people of great need, and yet God himself is the one who provides for that need. Like a good novel or movie that intensifies with each passing moment, the story of the Bible is one of tension hanging on the question of how a holy God will again dwell with an unholy people. And in the person and the work that is what Jesus has done to obtain our salvation, we see the resolution to this question. Paul explains more of what happens in Christ and in his work beautifully in Romans chapter 3. It might be helpful for you to turn there. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Paul explains here that Now the righteousness of God that is in Christ has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. We could spend a whole nother hour, I won't do that to you, but we could spend a whole nother hour talking about just this passage, what's happening in these verses. But I just want to highlight three quick things. First, Christ is the embodiment of righteousness, and he is revealed apart from the law and the prophets, which means that it is in Christ alone that we are cleansed from our sin and that we can obtain the righteousness that Christ speaks of and that God requires. Second, all of us, apart from Christ, as verse 23 demonstrates, are apart from God. All of us have sinned. All of us have transgressed God. All of us lack fellowship with God apart from Christ. And third, God is both just and the justifier through Christ's work. That word there in verse 25, propitiation, is just a fancy word that means that Christ has both wiped away our sin, that is that he has completely done away with it, but he has also appeased God's wrath. You see, God is, because he is just, requires punishment for sin. And so by putting forth Christ, God both cleanses us and also turns God's wrath 
away from us. You see, this is how God can be both just, that is, the one who is utterly holy and who fulfills his own righteous demands of punishment against sin, but also the justifier, that is, the one who causes a sinful people to, to, to be declared righteous, and thus when they stand before God as the good judge, as the ultimate judge, as the only right judge, God sees them as righteous. He declares them to be righteous just as he sees his son, Jesus Christ. The reason that God was able to credit righteousness to Abraham in Genesis 15 was because he was looking forward, that is, into the future, to Jesus Christ and Christ's atoning work on the cross. God was not caught off guard by our sin in Genesis chapter 3. He knew all along that the people that he had created, the people whom he loved, the people whom he had provided for, would reject him. And in doing so, would destroy the fellowship that they shared with him. And yet God demonstrates even greater love for his people through sending his own son to die in their place and to bear the penalty that their sins deserve. You know, it's one thing to know the love of God as his creatures who live under his rule. It's another thing to know the love of God as those creatures who have rejected his rule and yet received the gift of fellowship again because God's own son bore the penalty they deserved in death for their sins. In the cross, in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see something of the love of God that not even Adam and Eve knew in their perfect fellowship with him. We see the love of God made manifest in the giving of his son. The son that he had enjoyed perfect, eternal communion and fellowship with. His only son that he gave to stand as a sacrifice in the place of a people who had rejected him. He poured out his full cup of wrath, all of his anger, all of his just punishment against sin, that sin required, upon his own son. Do you grasp that love of God for you? Do you understand what it means that God has declared you to be righteous through his son, Jesus Christ, if you are united to him in faith? This is the, the greatest news in all the world, and this is the central message of this story in the Bible. That we can, again, have fellowship with God that though sinful through Christ, we can be declared righteous. At the cross, God's justice and love meet, and we are certain that God is who he says he is and that his promise to defeat the serpent from Genesis 3 and to overcome death through his resurrection from the dead is sure. All we have to do to receive this love is to do exactly what Abraham did back in Genesis 15. We have to believe the Lord. 
believe that God is who he says he is and that Jesus has accomplished what God says he has accomplished and what he has accomplished, and God will credit that to us as righteousness when we turn from our sin that we trust in him and believe in his promises. And once we believe, we can have confidence about where we're going. See that as the last point in your handout. For history is ultimately going to that garden again. (laughs) It's going back to the new creation. Revelation 21, which Paige read for us earlier, gloriously declares of a new heavens and a new earth where God, God's dwelling place, is with man again. In this place he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. If you remember back to the beginning, what did God commission Adam and Eve to do and what did God promise to Abraham? Land, offspring, and divine blessing. In Christ, we will enjoy a promised land in heaven where we will enjoy the new creation of God, the fellowship of a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, a fellowship with God, and we will be in unadulterated fellowship with God forever. I think sometimes when we think of heaven, we can think of ourselves sitting up there in white robes on our individual clouds, singing a song like, Lord, I lift your name on high for eternity. But that's not the picture of the new heavens that the Bible gives us. No, we will enjoy a new creation. We will enjoy the creation that was lost in Genesis 3, but it will be even better. We will rule over creation with Christ and resurrected those dead bodies that turn to dust. God will raise them up from the dust and we will be in glorified bodies with God. We will enjoy that fellowship with God and we will find eternal rest in God. The Bible is a grand story of what God has done to restore creation and to demonstrate the beauty, the wonder, the majesty, and the incomprehensibility of his divine love for his creation through his son, Jesus Christ. As we close, I want to leave you with three quick application points. Thanks for hanging with me as we sped through that overview of the story of the Bible, but As we think to apply this, I want us to first consider that your pain in this life will not have the final word. There have been various times in my own life where I felt overcome by the various circumstances I've faced, and whether it was remembering the time when my dad had cancer or concern for a close friend of mine in college whose mom passed away suddenly, We look around at this world and see that things are not as they ought to be. In fact, Paul talks in Romans about how all of creation is groaning to be restored. And we have assurance that your pain in this life will not have that final word. And yet God uses these things to remind us of that truth. We can so quickly and so easily try to make a heaven out of this earth. We can seek to establish ourselves and find comfort, find security, find hope here. But that pain, that sorrow, those hard things are meant to remind us that this dwelling we have now, it's, it's temporary. There's a reason that in Genesis 3, when God is pronouncing the punishments for their sin, that 
God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden and keeps them from eating of the tree of life. God didn't want them to eat from the tree of life because he wanted them to die as an act of mercy. I don't know if you've ever considered death as a gift of God's kindness and mercy, but in a fallen and sinful world, my goodness, it is a kindness. We don't want to live on this earth forever, but in Christ, we can be raised on that final day. Second, knowing the story of the Bible enriches your own Bible reading. I don't know if you've ever driven through the mountains at nighttime. It's the saddest thing in the world. (laughs) The beauty, the majesty, the splendor of the mountains are all around you, but you can't see them. You've been driving for hours through Kansas looking at fields, and then by the time you arrive in Colorado, it's dark. You're driving through the Rockies, and you can't even see them. It's sad. Well, not understanding the main story of the Bible, not understanding how some of these pieces fit together, it's kind of like trying to read the Bible in the dark in that way. By understanding what the Bible teaches, by understanding the beauty, the magnificence of who Christ is and of how he fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament, we get to see the beauty of Scripture in every single place. Even if it feels challenging to get through various portions, we can savor that beauty. It's kind of like watching something in black and white, like WandaVision, and then seeing it turn to glorious color. And then finally, in closing, ultimately, we want to know the main message of the body, of the, of the Bible, so that we can be more like this glorious Christ. Knowing the story of the Bible gives us the framework to know God by seeing Christ in his spirit-inspired word, which in turn, God uses in his kindness to turn us into more of Christ. So understanding this word helps shape us into ultimately those those people that God desires for us to be. Let's pray, friends.